Um, we have turned the page in our Sizzle and Summer sermon series going through Paul's letters from his words to Christians in Thessalonica to words to Christians in Corinth, which is a very different place. I'll say more about that in the sermon. He, he is going to deliver a series of messages, has sort of a laundry list of issues to address to Christians in Corinth. He begins uh, with a message about the nature of the cross. So hear this portion of God's word to you. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So here's a question to get started with this morning. What shape is your life? Not what shape are you in, but what shape is your life? If you were to be given a piece of paper and asked to kind of sketch out what it is your life looks like, what kind of shape would that be? I think... Maybe a very, very busy person, a frantic person, might sketch out something like a, a hamster wheel, a circle in a frame, and you'd be running and running around in frantic circles all the time. Maybe somebody who's very orderly, who's got everything down just so, would kind of just sketch out uh, a staircase. One step at a time, just so, no more and no, no less, very orderly and steady. Maybe somebody who is in a life transition would sketch out a, uh, a, a skein of yarn that's just been torn apart, just, just a mess of yarns with tangles and knots and everything all over the place. Well, if the Apostle Paul were asked this question, what shape is your life, he would have a very direct answer. 
he would look there and his life would be cross-shaped. His life was changed forever by a revelation of God coming down straight to him. And then he shared that message across to people far and wide. His message was always, and his life was always cross-shaped. In the words of uh, Dr. Michael Gorman over here at St. Mary's Seminary, who comes to us, one of his favorite words is a cruciform life. Our lives in Christ's image are to be cruciform, are to be cross-shaped. That's something for us to start with this morning. Now, in, in the summer sermon series, I've been thinking about the nature of letters and how it is that Paul continued to address people back and forth. And it's really an interesting dynamic. You know, all that we get here in these letters are, are reactions to things that have already happened. They're sort of in, in real time, but they are reactions to actions that we're not exactly sure of, of what took place. So there's always a bit of deduction that has to go on in reading through these letters that makes it a very different uh, piece of kind of literature than anywhere else in the Bible. These letters are really very special because they're intimate, they're, they're upfront, they're very personal, they're case studies for situations that we don't exactly know. And Corinthians, the Corinthian episode, is perhaps the most fascinating of all. It's said that there were more words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians than any other church, uh, even in the, to the Romans. There are two letters that we have uh, written to the Corinthians. There were probably four there's a portion of what might have been an earlier letter within this first letter that we call it now, and there was likely a follow-up that we don't have that makes it all the more interesting. Um, Corinth. Um, Corinth is an interesting place. Paul had been there in uh, about 49 AD, they said, uh, he had been in Athens just previously to his visit to Corinth, where, as you remember, as it's written in the book of Acts, um, he sort of flubbed it. He was there in the Areopagus speaking to philosophers, uh, the wise people of the day, and they summarily dismissed him. They said, come back tomorrow and we'll continue our conversation. That meant pretty well... See you later, Joe. So, Paul might not have been full of high hopes in his visit to this other city. Corinth was a very, very different city from Athens. It was a new city, which sounds odd, but is true. In 146 BC, the city of Corinth was leveled by the Romans which is the kind of thing that Romans did. Apparently, there was an uprising. Uh, Corinth, it's, you know, this is not in the Italian peninsula. This is, not, this is within the Roman Empire, but it is Greek territory. And apparently, there was a bit of an independence movement going on in Corinth. And the Romans came and leveled the city and moved everybody out. So for about 100 years, that, that city of Corinth was empty space. They began to rebuild the city in about 50 B.C., so by Paul's time, this city is about 100 years old, which is 
pretty new for an ancient city. You know, uh, those cities had grown up over generations and generations and centuries and centuries. So there's a different dynamic going on in Corinth than there had been in Athens. Corinth is also a port city, a bustling city. Some historians say there might have been 200,000 people in the greater Corinth area, which is, seems to be a, a, a pretty healthy number. Corinth, as a Roman city, was occupied by natives from the Italian peninsula who had moved over there and who were to govern the city properly. There were native Greeks who may or may not have been citizens. There were other foreigners who were surely not citizens. And then there were slaves, plenty of slaves, some uh, to be freed later on, some not. So there's a really interesting social dynamic that goes on in the city of Corinth, unlike a number of other places that Paul writes. So he gets to this town and spends probably a year and a half there working and ministering and uh, setting up the house church of Corinth. You know, we, we talk about the church of Corinth. Well, there was no big, you know, first church of Corinth. These are all house churches, of course. And and some historians say that there might have been up to 20 of them. And each of the house churches might have been anywhere between 20 people to 40 people, depending on the size of the house that the, that the owner had. And, and there was a, sometimes a courtyard where people could gather. Uh, what's also interesting, as Paul mentions repeatedly, is a sense of the, the, the social dynamic within these house churches. Because there were women and men, slave and free, Greek and Jew, um, it was a diverse group of people, which was very unlike what else went on in Corinthian society or Roman society in general. Roman society was very, very stratified, and the church is a place there where it wasn't stratified. So Paul moves on, and then he begins to hear about these different rivalries that happen between uh, Apollos, who apparently was a fairly dynamic guy and who claims uh, authority over those who he has baptized and tries to create his own church within a church. There's Chloe, uh, who, hard to figure out exactly who Chloe was, if she owned a home or she was a preacher. Uh, pretty interesting situation there too. There was uh, Stephanos. Uh, there were a couple other people who were creating their own little churches within a church. And they were disagreeing upon numerous things. Uh, the nature of the Lord's Supper, uh, questions of sexual morality, um, the distribution of goods, uh, the allowance of different people within their congregations. There is this laundry list that Paul addresses in Corinth that is amazing how relevant these things still are today in our long-established churches. What Paul begins with here in this first chapter, uh, I, I think, is, is, is the crux of it all. It's, it's, it's the cross. It's the, the crux. It's really where we begin and how we understand what it is to be a follower of Christ. He ends, by the way, with a chapter on love that I think you know, that we read at weddings and, and is a really summary to pull it all together. But the beginning of this message is really crucial for us to understand and it's kind of hard for us to wrap our, our minds around 
because we've lived in this understanding for so long. He, he says that the cross is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. He uses the Greek word moria, which is the root of our word moron, in reference to the cross. He says those who believe in the cross are morons. That is what the Greeks say. And they say that because, well, because they're Greek. Um, they they, they, they uh, have grown up with uh, platonic ideals and uh, the understanding of philosophers. That what is in God's realm is immutable, unchangeable, perfect. That is what God-like is. And there could be no uh, contact between gods and humans. If there is, and there was, of course, in Greek mythology, it was pretty random and chaotic and really didn't mean anything. Humans were playthings of the gods. So if you were wise, you would keep your distance from the gods. You made your sacrifices, perhaps, but you really didn't trust them for anything. You know, we have movies, all kinds of stuff about Greek mythology, but we really don't get into understanding how nasty those gods were. We don't have much of an appreciation of, of how random and chaotic, uh, and intentionally chaotic they were. Bad situation. Don't, 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 be, <laughs> don't be a pagan. <laughs> pagan stuff is not good. Uh, it is really random. It's not, it's not good at all. So to have an understanding that the Son of God would come to earth and be willing to suffer and die on our behalf is incomprehensible. Just, just does not make any sense at all. You can't even get started with that. So if, if you were to... Um, Make a symbol, I think, for what it is that uh, the, the way of life, the understanding of life, graphing out, charting out an understanding of life in, in a Greek pagan way, they would be two parallel lines. The gods lived on this level, humans lived on this level, you know, rarely if ever did they touch. Stayed apart. For, for Jews, the cross is a stumbling block, something to trip over. Jews, especially at this time in the first century, were waiting an arrival of a Davidic king. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature being written. They're waiting for King David, again, to come from heaven. They're waiting for the overthrow of Rome. They're waiting for the first coming, not the second coming, but the real arrival of the Messiah. Who is going to come in triumph to set things right once and for all? Now, if you tell a, an expectant first century Jew that the Messiah has already come, they're not going to picture Jesus. Because Jesus was the Messiah who was crucified, who willingly went to the cross and died and died a horrible death. Moses has said back in Deuteronomy that cursed be the one who dies on a cross. And folks knew what Moses said. And why should you disbelieve anything that Moses said? So cursed be the one who died on a cross. That rules this Jesus out completely. So how do you get over that? So you have to really, really wonder how in the world did Paul preach a gospel that took root at all? What chance did he have ever of making this work? All I can think of is that the cross makes sense in the heart. 
The cross says something that God wants to come to us. God wants to be with us. And as we begin to open ourselves up, that begins to happen. And then there's something within us that wants to share what God gives us. That's something else that's built into the human heart. I think every human heart, I hope every human heart, that there is something in this cross-shaped life that asks us to open up, understand, and be willing to hear God out and then be part of God's message in life. I think that's part of what happened in Corinth way back when, and then people got confused and all messed up about rules and regulations, but I think that's what helped the gospel take root because it is what takes root in our hearts, even today. I want to I close with a, a little prayer from um, some time ago. It was uh, allegedly found on the body of a Confederate soldier after the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, he was located at Devil's Den, is one, is, is one alleged origin of this. Another one says that it was uh, passed along from a Confederate soldier to his sons and succeeding family. Uh, you may well have heard this before, but I think it kind of summarizes how it is that we meet God through the cross, through God's reaching down to us in unexpected ways, and how it is that we reach out to others in ways that come from God. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all most richly blessed. I think that begins to summarize something of the nature of the cross. That in what comes to us in unexpected ways, through the defeats and the doubts that we have, we are connected deeper to one another than we might often allow. We are connected deeper through Christ and through the Holy Spirit in ways that we can reach out and understand and be a help to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.